Welcome to the Relationships and Revenue Podcast. I'm John Hewlin, your host. Recently, I had the honor of interviewing Mike Manazer, call sign Nasty. As you probably guessed, he was in the U.S. Navy. In fact, Mike is a two-star Admiral U.S. Navy retired. He was also an actual Top Gun fighter pilot. He spent 36 years in the U.S. Navy. Now, since he's retired, he's crossed over into the civilian life. He's an executive with Boeing in the aerospace and defense industries. And he is also author of the outstanding book, Learn How to Lead to Win. Now, this happens to be part one of my interview with Mike. And we had an amazing conversation. That conversation went for two hours. And trust me, folks, it could have gone much, much longer. So what I did was I divided the entire interview into three parts to make it more digestible for anyone who's listening and or watching. So be on the lookout for parts two and three very soon. Now, please enjoy this episode with master storyteller and amazing man, Mike Manazer. Well, hello, everybody. Life is all about relationships, and great leaders heavily invest in those relationships. On the Relationships and Revenue podcast, we talk about how to improve our most significant relationships at home so we can be better in our business relationships. We talk with experts from all over the world representing many disciplines about the best tips and strategies to become amazing people and amazing leaders. Welcome to the show. Hey, I'm Mike Manazer, call sign Nasty. I spent 36 years in the United States Navy, and I'm happy to be here with the Relationships and Revenue podcast with John Hewlin. I'm also an author. I wrote a book called Learn How to Lead to Win. There's 33 powerful stories in there that span my time in the Navy from graduating in the U.S. Naval Academy in 1981 and retiring as a two-star admiral in 2017. Got to do a lot of great things, which we'll talk about today with John. John, happy to be here. Welcome back, everyone, to the Relationships and Revenue Podcast. This is your host, John Hewlin, as always. Thrilled to have each and every one of you with us today, either by listening or watching us. And as you heard from that fantastic introduction, I have Mike Nasty Manazer with me today. Mike, how are you? I'm awesome. I could not be happier to be here with you today. I'm glad we made it happen, John. Me too. Me too. And folks, that nasty is not his actual middle name. For those of you who don't know what that sort of thing means, that's his call sign. Mike spent 36 years in the U.S. Navy, which, first of all, Mike, thank you very much for your service. I don't say that lightly. It's, it very much is heartfelt. Thanks, John. Appreciate the trust of you and the rest of the Americans that, that have us defending our nation. And folks, one of the things that's super, super cool, and I'm going to be asking Mike about this. Mike didn't just see the movie Top Gun. Folks, he lived it. He was one of those guys. He went and graduated from that school. So, Mike, I want to start with that right off the bat because, wow, how cool is that? And, and I got to ask this question. As, as cool as I'm sure that was for you, how accurate are the movies? 
Now, since we yeah. most recently had a second one, which no one thought would even happen. Oh, gee, really? Was there a second movie? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's really, it's really cool to do that. And, and for, the, for the listeners and watchers out there, Top Gun is, is the real thing. You know, it's not just a movie thing. There's a, it was born in 1969 because we were not doing so well in Vietnam and air to air combat. And so there was a, a captain named Frank Alt who did a report that went to Navy leadership and said, we need better training in our fighters. And so Top Gun was born uh, in the very late 60s. It started training pilots back in the early 70s. And our kill ratio turned right around with that extra tra training. In fact, when we study what we do with airplanes back then, it's amazing to me that he, before that school happened, uh, men at the time, and now there's women flying fighters and, and just as badass as anybody else out there, but they weren't flying their airplanes at the absolute limits of the envelope. So that's what Top Gun teaches you to do. Mm. The other thing you'll hear, uh, John, and your listeners will hear is we talk about patch wearers, and you can see the patch on, on the sleeve of, of the graduates and you have to graduate from Top Gun to get a patch. The Air Force Fighter Weapons School is also extremely good. It's at Nellis Air Force Base right in Las Vegas, Nevada. They also have a patch. They're also called patch wearers. So in the United States, U.S. Navy, U.S. Air Force, very, very, very good um, fighter pilots uh, and, uh, and, and tacticians. And so, so the movie came out in, in 1986. Uh, it was filmed in 1985. And coincidentally, I was in the class... 85-1 Top Gun class with the movie filming around us. Oh, that's so, so cool. <laughs> not us in the school. There is no, there is no footage in movie number one of the school. It was all done in the hangars down the flight line. Hmm. But what's really funny is the flying scenes where Maverick and Goose are kind of bouncing around inside the airplane, kind of looking like that. Hmm. There were a couple of Tomcats that were set up down to the end of the flight line with all those those uh, photographic uh, like umbrellas around them and cameras inside mm. and they would fill the the airplane the guys in the cockpit doing their thing and they they'd bounce them around that's how they filmed it because yeah. the tomcat is flown with two qualified people and so when you see the tomcats flying in the air and they're you know they're doing the maneuvering there are no actors in those airplanes mm. different than the second movie i'll tell you that about that in a second oh um first movie Best recruiting, best naval aviation recruiting movie in the world ever, mm. because all of a sudden, explosion of people wanted to go be fighter pilots, and yeah. and so Miramar just exploded in 1986. It was already really cool to be there in the I Reagan bet. years, built up of all that kind of stuff, but but having you know having you know Miramar and the O Club there it just exploded. All kinds mm. of people and going. So um, it was pretty cool because of the camera technology back then. They kind of had to fly a lot closer than than we're used to. We don't fight sitting right next to somebody trying to shoot somebody down. Mm. But the maneuvering that you saw inside the frame, pretty accurate. Um, second movie, better because of the, the movie or the camera technology. There is no trophy for the best pilot. <laughs> ah, okay. That was a story. However, there is a competition and everybody knows. It's just oh, okay. <laughs> not stated. And so yeah. when you walk into the bar, everybody knows who's good in the airplane and who's not. And they're, you know, they're, they're the reputation, you know, like any, uh, like any profession, you know, the best operators are, are known and, and they're, they're acknowledged and, and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, and, and well-respected and, and, and great mentors. Um, Top Gun was formed so that you could teach people to be able to go back to the squadron and train 
everybody else in the squadron. Mm. There's a lot of ego in here, John. So, you know, your podcast is about relationships. Imagine if I came into your best performing company, the best performing company that's listening to you right now. And I said, I'm going to take John Hewlin out of the ranks here. And he's going to go get this special master's doctorate Jedi Knight class on business. And he's going to come back because he's the best in the company. And he's going to come back and he's going to teach all you guys how to be good businessmen. You think there might be some ego involved there? A L- little bit. So little bit. just a little bit. So we're taught in Top Gun how to teach and you become a master of your craft. But mm. also there's a level of you know you are training the best fighter pilots in the world. And so you have to, you have to manage your humility. And by the way, if you, if you get an ego, oh, you're going to be, you're going to be rocked. I mean, you're going to be knocked mm-hmm. off the can pretty fast. Wow. And so, oh, you think you're all of that? So two things happen. One, you'll get back and two, you won't be as effective a teacher. Sure. And so back in movie number one and all the way until about the mid nineties, the Top Gun course was five weeks long mm-hmm. and it was three flights of straight air to air combat training. And it was, oh my God, it was, you just. You, you briefed early in the morning, uh, two, two hours prior to the flight. You walked to the airplane. You flew an hour uh, in a range close to San Diego. You landed. You debriefed the flight. You got in the airplane again, briefed the next one, got up again, fought mm. again. And then if you were at a de- deployed base away from Miramar, you, you then flew an admin hop back to Miramar. So three flights. It was awesome. Wow. I mean, the most flying I'd ever done, the most hard flying I'd ever done. It was really, really great experience. And so that was pretty cool. Tom Gun. And at the time of the filming of the second movie is 10 weeks long. Wow. And every aviator that goes through that front and back seaters are epically educated. They, they get educated in every single aspect of employment of their airplane, 10 mm. weeks, any regime. Um, and you know that now we, you know, air to air combat against a whole bunch of world threats and air to ground combat against a bunch of, mm. of, of world threats. So. Sure. So it's very long and involved. Same thing, though. They graduate somebody to go and be able to teach. So second movie. First of all, the actors did fly. Um, oh they flew in the backseat of F-18Fs. So the F-18 Super Hornet F model is a two-seater. Okay. E model is a one-seater. Now, you see most, except for that airplane that Bob was in the back end, baby and baby on board, hilarious call sign, the, you know, the guy with the yes. glass. Um, except for that airplane, which which was, you know, was was an F. The rest of the airplanes are single seat F-18Es. Mm. The actors could not and were not qualified to fly the F-18s, although Tom Cruise pushed leaders of naval aviation to try to get qualified in there. <laughs> and he kept on, no, no, no. He tried to go to the Secretary of the Navy. The Secretary of the Navy was pre-briefed to tell him, no, you can't fly the F-18. Only qualified pilots do that. And so what you see is the actors are under G. They are actually flying in the G and experience and that is a pull, but they're flying in the back seat. Mm. The ones that are supposed to be in the front seat, they kind of show them from the back, and then you see these gloved hands moving the stick and the throttle, right? And so you mm-hmm. see their hands moving. That's actually that's the actual pilot's hands, and they and they do the camera angles, like making sure that you know that it looks like the actor in there. Quick, okay. quick, funny story: the pilots who flew Tom Cruise around. You know, they did not have the same hair as Tom Cruise, where that, you know, kind of that comes below the helmet right here. Oh, okay. So the makeup people created this little pelt that they oh, glued wow. onto the back of the of the Navy pilot's neck <laughs> so it protruded <laughs> below the helmet. 
So when you see a forward-looking camera lens angle that has Maverick on it, the hair is right because there are people that watch movies to look for details that are wrong. So they oh show gosh. Maverick looking at Tom Cruise <laughs> and then yeah. they show him his helmet from the front and he has the correct hair. And the real funny thing, there were two pilots that were doing that. One of them is total cue ball ball. So he's walking around <laughs> with, this, with this little triangular pelt on his neck. <laughs> um, two more, two more great uh, things. The canyon or the, the snow valley flying where they go in there on the, on the real strike and they go through underneath the bridge. That mm -hmm. valley actually exists. It's, it's a low level up in, in the Cascade Mountains near NAS Whidbey Island, and it's epic. The, mm. the thing that doesn't exist is the bridge, so people don't fly through the bridge. But, but maneuvering inside that canyon in there is, is awesome training. And then when they drop the bombs into the supposed threat you know, nuclear reactor thing, mm -hmm. that when they say consecutive miracles, that's an actual real tactical term. Mm. And the reason it, it's real is what we try to do is put a precision-guided weapon right into the impact spot and then and then before it has a chance to really billow from the smoke and the destruction, the second one hits so its laser dot is stays on the target. So you get whoa, whoa. Oh, so okay. The first one like digs a hole and the second and they both explode. But the second one is right after the first one, and you get that you get that full blown destruction. We've used that in Iraq and Afghanistan to great effect. Wow. It's a real tough target. So um anyway, great movies, great to watch. And of course, for me. When the Tomcat comes out, and I hope your your audience by now has seen the second movie, but at the end when the Tomcat comes out, oh my gosh, I was just screaming in the movie theater. <laughs> All right, a Tomcat. So, yeah. Uh, totally fun. Anyway. Oh, yeah. man. Well, thanks for sharing that about Top Gun. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, we can just get that information anywhere. We can't. I mean, because you... You lived it. You know, yeah. it's, it's one thing for us to kind of live vicariously through the movie, kind of. But it's another thing. It's like you're confirming something and saying, well, this isn't quite right, but it mostly is. And that's real helpful to somebody like me. So thanks for sharing that. So you had a very long and glorious career in the U.S. Navy. So if it's possible, can you summarize that for us? So obviously you started at Annapolis, which in and of itself is extremely impressive because they don't let just anybody in to the academies. They don't. And so, I mean, you had to be somebody smart. And I know you're smart because your degree is in engineering. So I know you're not a dummy. It's, I mean, you couldn't to go to Annapolis anyway. But with that degree on top of it, there's, just, there's a lot involved with that. And I know that because I have several friends who are engineers. So. So take us through kind of your history, starting, you know, with Annapolis. And then, you know, how did you make the progression all the way up to Rear Admiral? Well, uh, so so first of all, there's just a whole bunch of hard work there, John. I mean, I got a 2.77 in aerospace engineering over, over in the school, which is about eight minutes to my left. Uh, we we live here in Annapolis, Maryland. And, and I wanted to go there so I could fly. And that oh, was, yeah. I had a, uh, in fact, in my book, Learn How to Lead to Win, describes the epic vision I had when my father took me to a Navy Georgia Tech football game and I watched the midshipmen march on and I said, that, that's what I want to do. So mm. I was in eighth grade and I said, right there, bang, that's what I want to do. That, I want to go be one of those people. Mm. And the next Monday I went to the um, guidance counselor, so I'm going to Annapolis, what do I need to do? And she 
drew out on a piece of paper all the courses I need to take in high school. I went to four different high schools mm. and I took one. I walked in and said, Academy, I need to take these courses. And I just mm. pushed. So the first theme of the book actually starts with this vision, begin with the end in mind. And I just drove mm. myself. I just yeah. wanted to, you know, I did everything possible to get into Annapolis because I wanted to then go fly. I wanted to fly fighters off of carriers. And with all the hard work and the perseverance, I got to do that. And um, I mean, respect to all the engineers out there. I'm a 2.77 guy. Now, later on in my career, after I had command, I'm 42 years old. I did relearn all of it in Navy nuclear power training prior to going to the aircraft carrier. Again, yeah. just like being in college, that's an engineering degree. That requires yeah. seven days a week of studying. And if you take, you know, one day off Saturday just to go chill and take a deep breath, go back in Monday afternoon and you're studying until, you know, 11 o'clock at night and you've already studied on Friday, it's seven days. It's really tough. So I, mm. I did learn, but it's a whole bunch of hard uh, basically, to summarize my career, I graduated from Annapolis in 1981. Um, I got a pilot slot. I finished high enough, even with that 2.77, to get a pilot slot and go down to Pensacola. Um, and I got to Pensacola again, we began with the end in mind. I wanted to fly Tomcats. It was right around the Gulf of Sudan, and Tomcats were very cool. I went to the first day of flight school. I took a sticker of a Tomcat and stuck it to my helmet. Mm. Cocky. I mean, that is. <laughs> Nobody did anything. Nobody said anything to me the entire time I had this Tomcat sticker on there. If I was an instructor and a student showed up with a Tomcat on the primary airplane, he hadn't even started to fly yet, but he'd have a target on his back, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so when I got to the end of flight school, I did everything possible to do as good as I can. I mean, just to try, I tried every, I was studying hard. I did not let the pack go, had a good time, but didn't let the yeah. pack go down. Tomcat slot. And I mm. went to Miramar and started flying Tomcats. So I flew Tomcats. Um, and, uh, and culminated in, in commanding a, uh, a Tomcat squadron from 1997 to 1998, the F-31. Um, I had a couple tours in the Pentagon at that time. Uh, I got selected to go to Navy nuclear power. And, and there is a story in the book about not wanting to do that. I mm. wanted was to be an air wing commander. I was going to stay flying. I didn't want to go back to school. I didn't want to stick pencils in my eyes, you know, and. <laughs> And there's actually only a two thirds chance that you'll get an aircraft carrier after 10 years of being at sea. Wow. I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily willing to take that chance. And so, mm. uh, another story about mentors in the book is I had a four star admiral that was a three star mentor. And instead of being kind to me, he, he kicked me through that nuclear power door. Wow. Basically shoved me through it with a whole, whole bunch of forcefulness. <laughs> and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And so mm. from 19, basically from late 1999 until 2009, I did the Navy nuclear power pipeline where I was the XO of Carl Vinson on 9-11. I commanded wow. a supply ship. I had a staff job in there and then I ultimately commanded USS Nimitz, a CVN-68, the aircraft carrier from 2007 to 2009. I got selected as an admiral in the, in the end of my carrier tour. And then I served in the Pentagon mostly, and then at sea, one other operational tour, striker commander. And I ended up retiring from the Pentagon in 2017. So started out as an aviator, went from the academy. That's what I wanted to do. Got to be a ship driver in the last half of my career. And then I have five tours in the Pentagon. So mm. operating in the Pentagon bureaucracy for budget and programming. And then, and then back to, you know, operating again. So that was kind of the nature of my tour. And every time I did not, 
I just was unhappy in the Navy. They gave me a better job. It was like, oh, wow. okay, I'll stay. And pretty soon, 36 years just went by. Wow. And, um, you know, I got out as a two-star. Um, there was a path to three and four that, that I was discussing with the Navy. And it just kind of became this thing. Well, our timing was, was just right. And now, and Kelly and I moved to our forever home here in Annapolis and, and worked for the defense industry, kind of doing similar stuff to what I was doing in my last job. So pretty, nice. pretty cool career, pretty fun. A lot of hard work as the book yeah. will show John, a lot of failure. That's the second mm. theme. First theme begin with the end in mind. The second one is failure stretching mm. us so that you're not afraid to fail. You're going to fail if you're trying hard enough. Mm. And the third theme is the resilience to get back up and keep going towards that North star that you set for yourself at the very beginning. And that's, that's the journey through the book. Yes. If you just did a buy and said, well, look at this guy, Academy graduate, fighter pilot, top gun, a carrier officer, admiral. Oh my gosh, look at all the medals. Are you kidding? The work and the failure it took to get to that place was a lot. And, and I just wanted to be that person. And I just tried as hard as I could to go be that person. What I saw on my mind's eye as a fighter pilot, a top gun graduate or a carrier CEO, and I had a blast. Wow, man, that's amazing. Um, you know, most people would. I want to be careful how I say this when I when I speak in generalities, but I think most people that I know would be more than willing to give up some limb that they have to have just a, a smidgen of what you got. Now, if they knew it would take to get to get to that point, all the stuff you went through to get to it, I think the percentage goes way down. Because yes, unfortunately, sir. Mike, I'm sure you noticed this during your time in the Navy, and certainly since you've become a civilian, that people are soft, man. Now, they're not, they're not willing to put the work in to get to a better place to get to that next level, but to keep going to work at it and to learn that it's not just going to be handed to you. I mean, I noticed that, especially when I'm dealing with, I'm 53 years old. So when I'm dealing with, with younger kids, you know, these expectations that some of them have, I'm like, where did you grow up? Cause I've never in my life have I had expectations like that. It's like, if I wasn't willing to put in the work, I wasn't going to get anything. So where are you coming from expecting to be at the top of the ladder on day one? Yeah, I, uh, I tend to stay away from generalizations as well, just like you did. Um, I get a lot of people who characterize, you know, the current generation as, as uh, soft. What I remind them is I get a chance to go over to the U.S. Naval Academy and I get exposed to West Point and the Air Force Academy and the midshipmen that are at our various educational uh, institutions throughout the country. And I am shocked at the quality of young Americans that are getting into the military. In fact, Good. you know, most, they're, they're, most Americans cannot even join the military because the standards are so high these days. And so mm -hmm. you're right. Um, it takes hard work to get something worthwhile. Yes. And if you're willing to put in the hard work, you will probably get your goal or, or at least very close to it, something acceptable to you, but it takes that work. And I think that's the best advice. And you said it first for your listeners and watchers is, is when you're, when you're faced with somebody who said, Hey, I just want to be that person. 
okay, well, it's going to take that work to go do this. And so when somebody's looking at me and saying, hey, how did you get to do that? Well, I, I tell them, <laughs> um, this is what you have to go do. And um, there's a great story in the book. Chapter 18 is called The Cable Guy. And I'll just describe this to you because it's it's a theme of what you're talking about. So Kelly and I are in our house in 1985 in Escondido, California, and the cable guy comes in to install the cable in our house. Blonde kid, good looking, young, probably early 20s at that time, 22 or so. And he's putting the cable in the TV and he turns around and looks at the wall kind of be, you know, behind us where the TV's over here. And mm -hmm. all of my Tomcat stuff, so I, I love me stuff, was kind of on that that upper wall. Mm -hmm. He goes, hey, you fly those things? And I go, yeah, right down at Miramar here. And he goes, how'd you get to do that? He, and I said, are you you interested in aviation? Well, I'm a glider pilot. You know, I I have, he actually had some records in, in mm -hmm. you know, lighter than air um, flight, right? And and I said, well, I went to the Naval Academy, but you can go, you can go to flight school if you have a four-year degree and go down to the recruiter and get started and you got to go through a you know a session program aviation officer candidate school or some kind of officer candidate school mm -hmm. but if you have a four-year degree you can join no oh, okay that's kind of cool didn't think anything of it a bunch of months later he gets in touch with me and he's about to enter the f-16 uh replacement training unit at luke air force base in arizona he had gone out from my house taken his little cable van driven down to the Navy recruiting office who told him we don't have any slots in the Navy. And he looked around and goes, all right, I'll go to the Air Force. They fly. They let him in. He succeeded through Air Force flight school, flight training, got jets and was headed to fly F-16s. Mm. He has an F-16, a couple of hours, goes over to Korea. He decides that the Air Force is not for him. So he gets out. He marries his girlfriend. They have a family. He flies for the Air Force Reserves in F-15s. And he's flying. He's a Northwest pilot. So now he's flying Northwest pilot, um, circa early 1998. And this is what's cool in the chapter, the chapter called nasty versus the cable guy. <laughs> and so 13 years after I met Reagan nickel installing the cable in my house, we realize that I have my F 14 D squadron on a deployment down at Key West, Florida, and he mm -hmm. is on duty in Homestead air force base in Miami. Mm. So my Otso, who I tell is my backseater, I said, he goes, oh, we got to fight. So 13, <laughs> up off Key West, and I come up to Florida straight to my Tomcat D, and he comes off of Miami Homestead Air Force Base in an F-15C with the Air Force Reserve, and we fought. Oh, cool. Three engagements. He beat me on the first one, gunned me. It was only guns only, training. Mm -hmm. And then I beat him on the second one, and then the third one was, was characteristically neutral. And so he won. And our fight on the third one was very, very close to that scene in Top Gun 2 where Rooster and Maverick are in this little spiral going down because eventually you're trying to get behind somebody and your nose is down so far because you're trying to keep airspeed on that it looks like a little spiral like that. Mm -hmm. we, we were probably not as close as they depict in the movie, but something close to that. Yeah. And so then we... But he went and he's he's still flying for the airlines. Northwest is is not anymore, so he flies for somebody else, Delta, I think, or something like that. And and so that seeing the possibilities in somebody and describing them what it takes to do that, and then that person goes, "I'm going to go do the work to do that." Mm. That's how you get to do what I did. Yeah, you know, and that's that's so rewarding to see that 
to know that you had just I mean, you had just a little bit of influence in that guy's journey. You know, it's like somebody else planted the seed, somebody else tilled it and you just you added a little water to it. That's it. And then it started. It was up to him to make it grow. Yep. Yep. So your theme is exactly correct. Anything somebody thinks is worth doing is going to take the work to do that. Um, mm -hmm. Things aren't going to get handed to you when 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 they said, hey, you're going to go, you know, you're going to go to this program to be, you know, the CEO of, of a nuclear powered aircraft carrier. I wasn't willing to voluntarily walk through that door and do 10 years of sea duty started with really, really hard study with a one in three chance. I was not going to get the carrier because of the way they do it. They just take the best of the people that get out of that thing there. And I mean, as also was depicted in the book, one of my failures is I didn't select for an aircraft carrier until the very, very, very last chance. Wow. And I was devastated. I didn't get all of that work and that pushed me through the door and it didn't come. I was so angry hmm. that it was a wasted like a decade, right? Like eight yeah. years of, of doing that. And then the last look, um, you know, as the hand of Providence is in there, your life is guided a certain way for a certain reason. And they selected me for a carrier. I got Nimitz and, and it was just awesome and epic. It's like, it was supposed to happen. And had it been selected a year earlier, it wouldn't have been as good. So, yeah. you know, I, I would not have done that voluntarily without my mentor shoving, it kicked me through the door. So <laughs> I talked about mentors and I got to tell you this one because I'm on there. Some mentors are really nice and they're very, you know, they're, they're, they're working with you and they're telling you, yeah, you know, you, you got others, you got strengths and we just, it's okay. And it, you know, they're kind of helping you through and they're a little, they're a little they're sensitive to you. Other mentors, they see the, the potential in you and they kick you through that. Door. You might not be able to do that. <laughs> get through that door. So I would tell your listeners, and, and when you go to the relationships and revenue thing, when you look at revenue, if you're in a company or organization and you have a path that you think you're on, and as you walk down that hallway of various doors and one to the side opens and you think you're going this way and that door is standing open, go through that door. Mm. Somebody in that company, somebody in your life is saying, or something happens and you get deterred or stopped from going where you thought you were going, go through the door that's open for you. You're going to find that it works out better for you. And when you look back on your life's mm. journey, it's, it's going to have all these, you know, jinx and, and, U-turns and failures and falls and backtracks and everything, but it's going to, you know, it's just part of that journey getting up to where you're, where you're going. So all the way back to your very first question about my career, it didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to at all. Yeah. I mean, when I started, you know, I, I drove myself, graduate from Naval Academy and to as hard as I could. And when I failed a course or failed a test, I mean, I was in there trying to get that, that test going. When I failed in flight school, I was in there doing as hard as I could to keep going, you know, so I could get that goal. So you just got to keep trying. And it's only a failure if you quit getting up. Thank you. You just, mm. that's something, man, I, I tried, have, I have tried for years to drive through to people. I, because it's my belief, Mike, that there is a difference between failing and failure. Failing means I tried something new. I didn't do it right, and I have an opportunity to learn from it. Yep. Failure, like you said, is it's a state of being. It's choosing to stay stuck. Yep. Now, if somebody's choosing failure, I can't help that person. I just yep. I can't. But somebody who's failing, 
and is willing to accept help, I can help that person all day long and twice on Sunday. Especially if they're willing to learn. Yes. You learn from failure. We talk about you know, the best learnings from failure. You know, that which doesn't kill me is called experience. You know, <laughs> yeah. I got a lot of that, you know. Kind of, <laughs> you, you and me both. You go. Yeah, all of us do. And the six, every successful person that we know, both me and you know, has had failures through, has been failing throughout their life, right? Yeah. They, they call it a failure, but the way they characterize it is, I failed here, I learned this, I went here. It's when you stop trying. It's when you stop getting up. It's when you quit. That is that is the quintessential mm. failure. Had I had had I decided that the Naval Academy wasn't for me when I got there and didn't have my North Star to go fly, and I stopped, mm -hmm. you know, I would have had to redo, you know, that thing. That would have been a failure for me to get out there. But but I just worked my way through that that four years. But failure is about learning. Mm. Um, and the other, I'm, I'm sure we'll get, and I'm not even letting you ask questions. I'm just freaking. That's all right. You're doing great, man. With, I'm digging this. So I'm, I'm glad, um, you know, you, if you, if you want something bad enough. So we talked about doing the work. If you want something bad enough, you will be willing to fail. Now you don't get up every yes. morning. You know what? Today I'm going <laughs> to, no, but what you do get up is go today. I'm going to try that. It might be mm -hmm. a new skill. You're going to be afraid of it because you can't do it. Maybe yeah. you got to learn how to do it. You might look stupid, you know, and you might, you might be a new guy or something or you, mm -hmm. or it's too daunting or, or, or scary and, and you just won't try. Well, <laughs> you, you fail and fail and fail and keep going. And pretty soon those repetitions are going to create your expertise and you're going to get better at it and better at mm -hmm. it. Gosh, there's a zillion examples of, of that kind of thing in, in sports and in hobbies. And, and you know, Thomas Edison tried 10,000 times to create the light bulb. But all people remember is he invented a light bulb. Well, there right. were 10,000 tries before the one actually worked. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you say that to people because I believe it, it fervently, you got to do the work. You're willing to fail. You learn something, you get back up and keep going with the resiliency to continue on knowing you just learned something behind you, maybe on a different path, still mm -hmm. towards that North star. And you have to have the North star to take you in that direction. Otherwise sure. you don't know where you're going. Right. I mean, that's well, you keep talking about the North star. I mean, I keep thinking about, you know, like the origins of the Navy and seafarers in general, they all, that's how, you know, all those treks over the, the seas when nobody knew where they were going, that's how they figured it out yeah. was by having that, that one, that North star, something to point me in the right direction. I don't know exactly where I'm going, but as long as I can still see it, I know yep. I'm headed in the basic direction I need to go. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Right. And of course, North star is a cliche, but it's, it's some kind of direction, a vision, a thing that's driving you to continue every day. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for people that have, you know, debilitating diseases or, or disabilities, it's, it's something gets them up every day. Mm -hmm. Something drives them. And, and I'm fascinated by listening to stories about people dealing with adversity and they're handling it. They're positive about it and they're working hard to make their life better. They might even laugh about it. They have a sense of humor and they're, there's mm -hmm. a, they have a feeling of gratitude. The best ones have a feeling of gratitude. And you look at yes. it and you go, how can you possibly be grateful for your lot in life and say, well, well, how, how was, what, you want me to just sit here and die? Right. You know, so right. people are, they've got something that's driving them. And so I think for your, for your yeah. listeners, 
your audience, you know, we all have to look for something that's driving us every day. Mm-hmm. It might be a small thing that gets us out of bed. It might be another person. It might be a situation. It might be a job. It's some kind of purpose. Yeah. But if you're striving for something hard, there is a distant North Star that gets to you, that keeps you going that direction. Yeah. And then when you reach that thing or you, or you climb that mountain and, and you look for another mountain and you keep going and you never stop learning, you never stop growing, you don't even stop dreaming until you, you get to your deathbed and you can't anymore. Right. Even on your deathbed, you know, I just read something that was kind of cool about Walt Disney on his deathbed. He was looking at his dreams for what he was going to do next. And they, he oh. died like that, you know, so wow. it's really, really neat. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Something cool. has to drive all of us humans. And, and mm-hmm. then we get shaped by the relationships that we have. For sure. You know, Mike, what I, the, the various types of coaching that I do, and I talk about this song with was the speaking that I do. Um, I've never known one person who's done anything of significance that hasn't been through pain. That pain, this is how I define it. Pain leads to purpose, which leads to platform, typically in that order. Hmm. And so it's very difficult to find your purpose, your why, outside of pain. It's really hard to do that. And it just, it sets us up for that platform. I'll be very candid with you. There's a picture right here of me with my kiddos. Well, there is a person not over here. I've been divorced for 13 years. My divorce, Mike, was completely preventable. It was. And my part in it, I own it. I own all that. But the reason I say that is because that pain is what led to this podcast. It 100% did. This would, you and I would not be talking if that hadn't happened, which sounds weird, I know, but it's true. Mm-hmm. So that pain led to part of, it's not my sole purpose, but it is part of my purpose. And that is to bring exceptional people to the forefront to say, hey, this is somebody I need to pay attention to. And so I have somebody on like you, Mike, because you're teaching me stuff. And I promise you, if I'm learning stuff, the audience is learning stuff. So I'm, I'm getting a coaching session from Nasty right now. I am getting that. So Well, I'm learning I, stuff from you. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I love it. The dialogue. And, and when I engage in these dialogues with people and you know, I get invited uh, to come on to a show because I wrote the book, the journey yeah. in the book, the, the journey of producing the book has really, really I almost can't describe it for you. That life existed. I had those 33 stories. In fact, I had about four around. And starting in night, I started thinking about how to lead, like how to, how to be a person who can lead. Uh, yes. Not to read the books and, you know, do this and do that. I, I did, but so I really started thinking about it. But all those stories are rattling around in my head. And my my great friend and and close mentor, I love the man named Ben Carroll, who was mentioned in the book. He's the one that gave me the catalyst. He said, you should write a book. And I'm like, mm. no time. But the, the journey of writing this book, John, is has opened things up to me yeah. that just are exactly what you just said. Yeah. Um, you know, what's important in relationships? What's important for a good leader? 
Yeah. And, and what kind of a person do you, what type of a good person do you need to be to be a good leader with, you know, yeah. who leads with morality and humility and, you know, grace and all those kind of things. And then how to make, <laughs> how to make people better, you know, yeah. and, and lead. You and I started talking before we got recording a lot of titles in my Navy career, you know, as Annapolis grad, Top Gun grad, captain, you know, nasty, of course, which is easy, admiral. And so people, wow, you know, they want to do that boss. Um, and so, yeah. you know, now working in industry, I'm a vice president. And so there's a little bit. So it's tempting to lead with your title. Yep. But I have through 36 years in the Navy, another six years out in the civilian world, you can't lead effectively with your title. The people right. will, they will not fail for you. They will not try. Morale will be lower. They will certainly do the job, but you won't get the best out of the team. So, right. so my selfish reason for writing this book as it came together was I want more people to lead like me, striving mm -hmm. to lead from your heart and connecting as human beings rather than yeah. I'm the boss. I tell you to do this and, and just go because people won't do it. And, no. and so I, I really, I would, I resonate and, and, you know, I would, Hey, sorry for your pain. Sorry for your, you know, your, your divorce, all kind of stuff. But, you know, re both of us realize that's why you're here. That's why I'm here with you. And so, yep. yes, catalyst that we have, that's more learning, right? You could say that's a failure. You know, you, you owned part of the divorce Own that you could say I failed, but look, no, what I you, did. Yep. Yeah. Look what you learned. Look what you're doing. now. Oh the, man. I, all kinds of people. I just remember who I was back then. I wouldn't want to be married to that guy. Seriously. He, he was not a great guy. He wasn't. And I, I really, true, truthfully, I am so thankful. Thanks for watching part one of my conversation with Mike Manazzo. If you are ready for part two, it's already available today. So go ahead and jump forward. You can catch part two because I think you guys will love it. Remember, life is all about relationships. Thanks for being here. Bye. Thanks for listening to Relationships and Revenue. I'd love to get your thoughts on the show. Two ways you can do that are to give us a rate and review and or connect with me on social media. You can find me at John Hewlin. Thanks again for listening. And remember, passion gets you started. Purpose keeps you going. Have a great day and we'll see you next time. Bye.